opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods, and today our guest is Dr. James Leary, who is a judge at Nashua District Court in Nashua, New Hampshire. Judge Leary has um, a rather um, unique background in that he also uh, practiced for four years as a mental health clinician and also taught in Rhode Island in the high school English and was a guidance counselor. Judge Leary, could you just share with us a little bit about how you went from teaching English to being a judge in Nashua? It was an interesting travel along that line. Um, when I was teaching, I always had an interest in the law, and, uh, and a gentleman I was teaching with at the time, we decided to take the, L- well, the LSATs, they're called, the law school admission tests, and uh, based on the outcome of those tests, I decided to enter law school. It was always an interest. I was the legal side of the education um, I was always interested in. And when I was working as a social worker, I did a lot of juvenile court diversion work, so I was in court quite a bit. And the legal side always intrigued me. Probably more so than, than others, you, you see the correlation between mental illness and um, the, the legal system. And when I practiced law, I practiced law in New Hampshire for about 22 years before I became a judge. And during that time, um, when I went into law school, my intention was to to work in the field of education and mental health uh, as a lawyer. Not it's not exactly what I ended up doing, but it was always part of of my practice. I represented some of the uh, providers, mental health providers in New Hampshire, and always kept involved in that system. Well, I guess if we if we look back historically, um, when I was in graduate, well, I guess it was undergraduate school, I took a course, and one of the um, things that I found out, historically speaking, was in the treatment of addiction, um, up until the advent of, uh, like, Librium and other benzodiazepines, most folks with addiction ended up in the criminal justice system, and there were drunk tanks, and in New Hampshire, there was the county farm, and people would go there for the winter, and... Um, essentially be incarcerated at the county farm, but they stayed alive because they they worked there and they were fed and they were warm. And and then the system changed, and all of a sudden, well, probably in 72 with uh, the advent of NIDA and um, the Hughes Act, we had an influx of monies into the health care system for the treatment of addiction. So the, mental, so the legal system kind of backed off, and the, the health system, the public health and... Uh, mental health system took over the, the care and treatment of people with addiction. And now we're back to um, the legal system taking over the care of folks with addiction and now more and more so mental illness. So um, it's kind of right. been a circular experience for people. It's unfortunate, but I think you're you're exactly right about that. I, you know, as you know, the hospitals, the psychiatric hospitals closed down in the 80s throughout the country over about a decade or so. Um, so there was no longer, you know, people with serious mental illness, people suffering from schizophrenia and bipolar went, were no longer being treated um, 
in an institution. They were it was community based services now, and they were on the street, and they were started getting into trouble. And the police didn't know what to do but to arrest them, and so uh, jails be- become uh, filled with individuals and with suffering from mental illness. And uh, same thing with uh, alcohol and, and other drug abuse. Um, you know, it's not uncommon that, especially not so much this time of year, it's springtime in New Hampshire, but in the fall and the winter, individuals come in and you hit the nail on the head when you said they're asking for a place to stay warm and be fed for a while because they're, they're living on the street, they can't maintain a job, they uh, are not receiving any benefits, and so they end up going to jail for extended periods of time. I don't know if you saw in the Boston Globe today, on the front page, there was an article about a, a young woman who was civilly committed because of being a threat to herself, uh, suffering from alcoholism. And um, in Massachusetts, as a treatment facility, if you're civilly, now she didn't commit a crime, it was just civilly committed for, because she was a danger to herself and ended up spending time in jail, as a lot of other people apparently do in the Massachusetts system. So it's... It's not something, it's something that's uh, occurring throughout the country. And, you know, um, I think that there's, um, well, historically, you know, neither system has has really had great outcomes working independently of each other. You know, um, I know... The treatment having, and, and mental health and, 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 and judicial... And the legal system, yeah. When, okay. they're, when, they, when it's a parallel process, mm-hmm. I don't think either system has really good outcomes, but I think it... I think when the two systems combine and in in kind of a holistic way, there's really an opportunity to help both people with mental illness and addiction move forward in their lives. And, you know... That's starting to happen. You know, I I think you're certainly working with the the mental health courts. There's also um, the drug courts. And they make a... a, They help people really get back... um, into a life of health and, and wellness. That is becoming a movement throughout the country. A lot of courts, a lot of states are beginning what sometimes they're called specialty courts, other places call them problem-solving courts, but they all have the same goal. They take a particular issue, and you mentioned the drug court, the mental health court program we have here. We also have a drug court in our, in our court here in Nashua, New Hampshire. There is... Um, other other places have domestic violence courts. There are, um, you know, many different but similar types of programs that are, that are popping up throughout the country. Because I think the judicial system is trying to recognize that we have to do more than just put people in jail. That we have the ability and uh, to actually encourage people to seek and and uh, cooperate in treatment. And as you said you know, get back on track in their lives. Well, I know that airplane pilots have one of the highest rates of addiction of any profession. They also have a very high rate of recovery and compliance with treatment because they're monitored extensively after they go into treatment. And that certainly seems to be a role for the judicial system when um, someone comes to, you know, when they when they become arrested as a result of a drug-related or alcohol-related crime or as a result of um, being in the throes of their mental illness and committing a crime. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. Um, 
I think that's the most important part of what we do is to monitor what's going on with the individual. Uh, you know, as you know, many people with mental illness also suffer from substance abuse, and the two tend to go together. And most of the people we see here in court do have these co-occurring disorders. Uh, it's hard to choose for, you know, we're not, the judges certainly are not professionals and are in no position to diagnose and establish treatment. So we have to work with the treatment community and the providers in, in determining what is the best course of treatment for individuals. And what we, what we can do is we can issue orders and we can tell this person that if you don't comply with this particular treatment plan, then you're going to be going to jail. And it certainly is an incentive to make sure that person complies with the treatment plan. Now, it may, you know, we only have jurisdiction over them for a certain period of time. When that period ends, a lot of times some people don't go back to their prior behavior. But oftentimes, and I think the majority of times, uh, if they stay sober and drug-free and on, on, you know, comply with the treatment and take medications for a year, they understand that this is a different way to live and, and they break that cycle that we see or have seen in the past of you know, recur- recurrently coming into the court system. When did these diversion programs first begin and how did they come about? Well, um, I would say they really have... Um, become common in the past five years or so. Um, how they came about, I don't know, was there an epiphany one day where everybody woke up and said, heavens, there's something we can do. I don't know what happened. I know the federal government established some funding for, for, for substance abuse and, and alcohol abuse through uh, SAMHSA, and the Department of Justice established um, a program through the Bureau of Justice Administration was a federal act, I think it was called a Mentally Ill Offender Treatment Act or something like a Treatment Crime Reduction Act. And they provided some money to provide these specialty courts, and that's when they started becoming useful. We started ours in probably, this is what, 2008, 2005. We started our program here in Nashua. And about how many people do you see a year that come through your court that have a mental illness or dual disorder or addiction? Well, I don't know, but I can tell you that in this court we've had, last year we had about 15,000 criminal complaints. Now, many people have more than one, so I'm figuring let's cut that in half. Is So say 7,000 people came through our doors who were charged with a criminal offense. Um you know, we read statistics, and I guess we have to apply the, the national and local and the statewide statistics, and usually you hear about 20 to 25% of people who were involved in the criminal justice system suffer from a, some form of mental illness, and um, about 80% of those have co-occurring disorders of substance abuse. So, you know, applying those numbers, we're looking at somewhere around 1,500 people, if my math is correct, of people who have... Um, uh, either or both, you know, a co-occurring disorder or one or the other. Can can you kind of uh, describe for our listeners typically um, what types of crimes people uh, is there? Is there certain types of crimes that you see more than others? Is yes. there a certain profile of absolutely, of people? absolutely. 
it is usually the term, and I don't like the term, but I, I think it, it's appropriate. It's, it's called nuisance crimes. I don't. Th- I, the reason I don't like it is because if you are the victim, it's not a nuisance. It's something very serious to you. But, but um, you know, it's like criminal mischief, uh, simple assault, uh, disorderly conduct, um, that kind of behavior that you see on a repeated basis when a person is not complying with treatment, is not taking medications, maybe drinking uh, or taking other substances and in a manic phase and goes out and starts trying to direct traffic in the middle of the night downtown or, or um, you know, maybe assault somebody because they believe they can, they have the power to take over, you know, the, the world they're in. Um, those are the people we see on a recurrent basis. That was the cycle, that, that cycle we were trying to break by beginning this program. And we'll be right back with Judge Larry to talk more about decriminalizing mental illness and addiction and how his court um, helps people break that cycle. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Ladies, are you looking for a place where you can talk candidly about anything and everything? Well, here it is. Timeless Women Speak on the Voice America Women's Channel. We'll talk about sexuality, age-proofing your career, finding your passion and purpose, keeping your brain power, keeping your marriage fresh, dating for grown-ups, plastic surgery, surviving our beauty culture, and much more. Tune in Tuesdays at 11 a.m. Pacific to Timeless Women Speak with Dr. Nancy O'Reilly on the Voice America Women's channel. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Step into a healthier you. Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. Today, our guest is uh, Judge Leary from Nashua District Court here in uh, Nashua, New Hampshire. Uh, Judge Leary, could you talk about the history of how um, this program and other programs like it got started? Sure, I can tell you about our program. Uh, it was, as I mentioned earlier, I was representing the community mental health centers, and uh, I came, when, one of the first days on the bench, I had three arraignments to deal with that morning. And I'll briefly tell you what they were. One was a gentleman who I saw the complaint. He was accused of assaulting a, a seven-year-old mother, which I found to be appalling. Um, so I had reined him, and the prosecutor said, I'd like somebody in the courtroom would like to speak to you. It turned out to be his mother, who he assaulted the night before. 
She explained that her son had graduated from college, was an engineer, doing incredibly well in life, and was diagnosed uh, with schizophrenia. He was now in his early 40s. He was pretty, when he was compliant with treatment, he was the most wonderful person on the face of the earth. Periodically, he would stop taking medications. He would start drinking. And, um, and it was during one of these episodes the night before when he said he wanted his money because she was the representative payee for Social Security benefits. He wanted his money, and she said, no, because I know you're going to use it to buy alcohol, and he pushed her. It changed a lot of the complexion of what exactly I thought about this person when I first saw the complaint of assaulting a 72, I believe, a year old woman from this gentleman suffering from schizophrenia with this mother, the empathetic mother, please don't put my son in jail. He's not a criminal. He doesn't belong in jail. The next case was a gentleman who was out in the middle of Main Street in Ashwood directing traffic at 2 o'clock in the morning. And the third gentleman was somebody standing on the back door of someone's house. And the police had kept telling him to leave. They keep banging on the door and come to find out that's where he used to live. And he believed this was still his house. And he was, he was um, also schizophrenic. The other gentleman was, a, was suffering from bipolar disorder. I got off the bench and I just shook my head and thought, none of these people belong in jail. What are we going to do about this? So I called the community mental health center. I asked them if they knew who these individuals are. They said, of course, we can't tell you. And I said, right. well, I'll tell you who they are because it's public record. If you know them, get over here. Every one of them, all three of them, had been in treatment at the community mental health center. They all got into treatment right away. But it became apparent to me that a lot of individuals that come before the court are not criminals. They don't belong in jail. They're people who are suffering from an illness, and we have to do something to assist the person in receiving treatment and staying out of the system. So we assembled a very large group of people, and it was the providers, the um, State Department of Mental Health became involved, prosecutors, the police, defense lawyers, um, NAMI representatives from locally and, and statewide became involved, people from the jail, uh, probation. We all got around together at a table and spoke about different ideas of how we can deal with this. And it took a long time. It took over a year, but out of that, came a program which we uh, have called the Community Connections Program to deal with individuals suffering from co-occurring well, mental illness and or co-occurring disorders. Was it a hard sell? No. <laughs> it's interesting you say that. I thought it was going to be a very hard sell. Everyone that came to that meeting had the same opinion the jail was saying, we, do, we don't provide treatment. We don't know what to do with these individuals. Please find some alternative. They do not belong in our jail cells. The probation department was saying the same thing. You know, we, we monitor prisoners. We monitor criminals. These people are not criminals. We don't know what, they should be in treatment. We can't provide treatment. We don't know what to do. Please come up with some other idea. Obviously, the providers were saying the same thing. We know these people. They're not criminals. They don't belong in jail. You know, we've got to come up with some other treatment plan. The police, you know, um, these are not people we want to arrest, but we don't know what else we can do with them. You know, we keep telling them to stop the behavior. They keep doing it. We're left with no option but to arrest them. Everyone had the same feeling sitting around that table. 
So it was just a matter of putting collectively together a program. So what does the program consist of? Well, they become involved in the program at various points of intercept. Um, a person will be arrested. Everyone that we deal with has been arrested. They're talking about establishing a diversion program where I would never see individuals going into a program like this, but the program we have, they're arrested. Either at the time of arrest, if somebody notices the booking officer, the bail person establishing bail, um, the, the prosecutor, if somebody notices there's something awry with this person's mental stability, then we have a, a liaison with the community mental health program. He will come over and meet with the person. The also, it can happen at the time of arraignment. It can come from the defense lawyer. It can come from the prosecutor. Or it can come from one of the judges. Where you know, we think this person needs to be evaluated to determine whether this behavior is related to a mental illness or a co-occurring disorder. It can happen at the time of trial. Uh, any of those points, um, people become involved. Then an assessment is done as part of this program. It's a very quick assessment. It's, it's done. You know, within 24 hours, and it's not a full psychological evaluation, but it's a, a you know, a one-hour evaluation to determine whether they believe it is appropriate to go down the road of mental health treatment. If that's done, then the person can enter the program. It's a voluntary program, and they have to basically the deal is they have to come up with a treatment plan in conjunction with the providers, with the doctor and the therapist. They come up with a pro. A treatment plan, they have to agree to that treatment plan, and they have to agree to comply with it. Legally, it will go down one of two tracks. One track would be a continued case. You continue the case. You don't go to trial. You just push out the adjudication for a year, and if the person complies with the treatment plan during that year, then the case gets dismissed. There's no criminal record. The second track will be that there is a conviction, and uh, as part of the sentence, rather than going to jail, typically they'll have a deferred sentence to jail, and they, in order to stay out of jail, they have to remain a good behavior and comply with this treatment plan. If after a year they have complied and they've, um, you know, maintained their good behavior, as it's commonly referred to, um, then they do not do any jail time. The case is closed. And uh, roughly. Um, what kind of percentage of people uh, complete their their year and, and are successful? We, we've the program has been open for it was August of two thousand and five when it began, so we're going into our third year. We have had the first year was about one hundred and forty people. It went down to about seventy five last year, and then this year so far we're in in the mid twenties of people involved in the program. Of all those individuals, uh, a number of them obviously have completed the one-year cycle. We have had four people uh, who did not comply with the terms of the treatment plan, which is quite remarkable. And do you think it's a coincidence that every year it's gotten smaller as people are getting treatment and not coming back over and over and over again? I think the reason for the... I think there was a bottleneck the first the first year. There were so many people who were appropriate for this program that they were just pushed in the program right away when it opened. Uh, I think more we've become more selective in who would be appropriate for the program as time 
has moved on. Is part of um, the program, have the officers, have the National Police Department, have they received extra training on working with people with mental illness? Or yes. Court employees, have they received extra training? Yes. The Community Mental Health Center has a, is a community liaison who has gone out and does regular trainings with the police on mental illness. Um, I, I believe they also do it on substances, but I'm not. I'm, police receive so much training in that anyway. I don't. I don't believe that they do much on that. But it's mostly mostly a mental mental illness. Um, so there's certainly that training uh, that is done. Our staff has become certainly trained in this as well. Uh, bail commissioners, the individuals who established bail, have gone through a training on it as well. So, uh, you know, yes, we certainly want people to be aware. Um, of, you know, the situation we're dealing with. I know this is um, a little bit off the track of uh, the decriminalization, but in New Hampshire, um, when it comes time to have to involuntarily commit someone, that is a legal process, and it's Mm -hmm. a legal process in every state. And I know here we have to to, um, serve like a prayer and complaint and then the, either the local police or the sheriffs come and, and take the people to the state hospital or to the designated receiving area. And, mm-hmm. you know, the, the quality of that transport can be very respectful or very disrespectful because people are put in shackles and they're handcuffed and they're, and they're taken away. And oftentimes they're floridly psychotic or really manic and, and they're, you know, it, it's, it's a painful thing to watch when it's done in a disrespectful way. So, um, it's you know, it, but when it's done well, it it really helps us engage the person that we have to involuntarily commit. A lot of criminal charges come out of those situations, which is very unfortunate. Charges like resisting arrest, like assaulting a police officer, those types of charges. You see those a lot stemming from those points of of uh, confrontation where the police go to detain someone, put them in handcuffs, they'll put their hand behind their back, that they pull their hand away, that's resisting arrest. Mm-hmm. They go to grab the hand again, he pulls the hand away again, that's a second count of resisting arrest. And so criminal charges can just escalate um, you know, significantly at that point. So I think you're absolutely right, the people who interact with especially people who are psychotic um, to interact with them have to be aware of the what what they're dealing with and it's not somebody a criminal you're handcuffing here and uh, you know I wish you're right I wish there was more training in that you know um, you were talking about the the types of crimes that people um, typically commit to, um, to to get before your court but there's kind of a perception, I think, with a lot of people is that mental illness in and of itself, um, people that is kind of a crime. You know, there, people are shunned. Um, people, if they have any type of eccentric behavior, people are hypervigilant around them and, and generally may feel threatened or may feel like just because this person has a mental illness, they're capable of some type of criminal action. Mm-hmm. I think that's unfortunately very true, but um, they, for them to be charged, I don't think that's the case with police for the most part. No, at least. no, but I mean the general community. Right. 
But we wouldn't see that unless they were arrested. But from a legal perspective, people Mm -hmm. do have a legal right to be have a mental illness as long as they're not harmed to themselves or to others. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. Um, when when you think about your, your court, has the has the nature of your um, your work with other people changed when as this kind of consciousness raising around folks with what, what's what's happened, which is very interesting, is the communication among all these different parties that were involved in this in establishing this program, including you know the substance abuse treatment programs, has improved immeasurably. They never spoke. We never spoke to each other before. We never communicated. If nothing else came of this program, just the mere fact that everyone now knows who to speak with, they know in the community, the mental health center knows who to call in the jail if one of their patients has been hospitalized. They know who to call. The jail knows who to call if somebody who is under treatment um, is acting up in jail. There's just a communication going on now that just wasn't there before. So I think we deal with other people more respectful, but also the whole community or the various communities interacting each other has improved considerably. And we'll be right back after this break to talk more with Judge Leary about decriminalizing mental illness and addiction, one court's approach to justice. We'll be right back. Steps to a healthier you. Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Would it be crazy if you just stopped everything, packed your bags and left for a week, a month, a year? What if you left for two years? Would people think you'd lost your mind? What if you were going far away to help in a village on the edge of the Gobi Desert? A village crowded with Buddhist temples, not skyscrapers. A place where there isn't a word for recluse, but a thousand words for community. Would it be crazy to go 5,000 miles from home? To spend time with people the rest of the world only reads about? To build libraries and fill them with stories? Prepare a meal with food you helped grow? To teach children and learn a thing or two about yourself. Would that be crazy? Peace Corps. Life is calling. How far will you go? To find out more, call 1-800-424-8580 or visit peacecorps.gov. A healthy dialogue for your lifestyle. Voice America Health & Wellness. 
You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. We're talking with Judge James Leary from the Nashua District Court in Nashua, New Hampshire, and we're talking about decriminalizing mental illness and addiction and a court's approach to justice. And in our last segment, uh, Judge Leary was talking to us about how this court came about in Nashua, and it took about a year, and um, you were able to get all the stakeholders together to, to make this happen. And I'm wondering, um, did you have a model? Are there other types of mental health courts or um, drug courts around the country? There are. There are a number of different ones. Ours is pretty unique. Um, the typical model, the individual is convicted of the crime. So you cannot enter into the program unless you are found guilty of a crime. Uh, that was considered by us when we began our program, and the general consensus was that uh, we shouldn't need require the person to have a criminal record in order for them to receive treatment or encourage them to receive treatment through the program. So we established this program with a separate tract of of a continued case without adjudication, without a conviction, and if you're in compliance, then the case would be dismissed. Um, the other thing which is unfortunately different about our program than a lot of other models is that we do not have the ability or the capacity to have regular weekly or biweekly reviews. Most of the mental health programs you see throughout the country have um, you know, a weekly review where everyone comes back into the court every week. Uh, there's, there's someone who reports to the judge how that person has done during the week, whether they've been compliant. And if they have been, then they're congratulated. If not, then they're sanctioned. And it's done quickly, which is obviously a, a benefit. Uh, we just do not, the size of our court, with the number of cases we have, we just don't have the physical or capacity to, to in order to get uh, these regular reviews. You know, as I mentioned earlier, we have <clears throat> over 100 people in the program right now and to have a review weekly, we'd have we need hours and hours of time, and we just don't, you know, we don't have that. Right. Um, so, you know, the the downside of that, the reason why I wish we were able to do it is, I don't get to say congratulations to too many people when they finish the program. I can, but I don't get to pat them on the back and say, you know, keep it up and you're doing a good job. And I wish I could do that more often. Um, how is the court funded? Interesting question. Uh, we received a seed grant to begin the program from United Way. We have been applying for this Bureau of Justice Administration grant through the Department of Justice. Unfortunately, haven't received it. We have a grant out there right now, uh, an application for one right now. Uh, we are very lucky in that the director of the Community Mental Health Program here in southern New Hampshire is very much in supportive of this program, and he has dedicated an employee from their payroll to, to be our liaison and to serve as the intermediary between the Community Mental Health Center 
and the various providers. They don't have to go just to the community mental health center. They can go to their own providers, but he acts as the liaison between the providers and the court. How has your social work background kind of informed or influenced your work as a judge? Um, ooh, uh, <laughs> I think that what has tremendously. I, I think it gives me a different perspective from the get-go. I, first of all, I understand when I hear individuals, professionals talking about, you know, so, um, psychological evaluations and various diagnoses. I understand what they're talking about. They're talking about access one, access two. You know, having a master's degree in, in psychology, I, I understand that and can communicate with them. Um, it also gives you a certain sensitivity to the issues. You understand what the illness is. It's more than just a name. You have a better understanding of what it means, how it's manifested, who the people are. That um, They're not just these crazy people, but they're people who have an illness and what that illness kind of effects that has on people. And when you get to know personally, you know, many, many people who suffer from these illnesses, and you're not sitting up on a bench with a robe on detached from them, but you actually are sitting in their living rooms getting to know them, it gives you a different sense of who these people are that you're seeing in the courtroom every day. Typically, how do judges um, feel about the diversion programs, the diversion courts or the mental health and um, drug courts? There's two basic schools of thought. And there's some, as with everything in life, I guess, there's people on the extremes on both ends. And I, I think many, I'd even say most judges now that I've sp- spoken with, and they have a judicial college in Reno, a national judicial college in Reno, that has a whole program, a week-long program, one, one that I attended last year on co-occurring um, mental illness and substance abuse disorders. And the whole week-long program is just for to train judges on that and how to deal with individuals with co-occurring disorders in the courtroom. So the fact that the National Judicial College has this program is indicative of the willingness on the on a national scale, at least, to, to inform and educate judges on this issue. Some judges, many judges, unfortunately, in my mind at least, unfortunately, do not see this as being part of their job. They're not social workers. We call the balls and strikes, we make the legal calls, but we do not determine what a treatment plan should be. We do not, shouldn't be involved in the individual's treatment. So there are a number of judges who believe that. But I think the majority now have come to believe that our role is something more than just um, you know, being the umpire in a baseball game. What happens when somebody with a, a dual disorder or a mental illness commits um, I don't know, a more severe crime other than a nuisance crime. Does that change their ability to be in the program? Yes. Um, if it's a felony, uh, the district court system in New Hampshire, the court system in New Hampshire is set up where the district courts have jurisdiction over misdemeanors and any preliminary hearings in felony cases. We do not do jury trials. All the felonies go to jury trials and therefore they go to superior court. So, What's happening? If the, so, therefore, if it's a felony, it's not part of our program. However, so a drug felony, like a possession felony, wouldn't be part of your program. would not be part of the program. However, what's happening is they go through our our court on a preliminary basis. We determine any probable cause issues about 
you know, whether the case should be bound over for trial. And then it's transferred to the, to the Superior Court for the trial. The county attorneys, is what we call the prosecutors in New Hampshire and the Superior Court level, sometimes sending the cases back, reducing them to misdemeanors in order for them to get into the program. So, um, you know, I think people realize the benefit to, the, to this program. Also, Superior Court has, has what's known as the Academy Program, which is not dissimilar to what we've been discussing. It's a, that's mostly for people who have committed a felony offense, who um, maybe have gone to prison or coming out of prison, and it's a, it's a transition from prison or it's a diversion from prison program. We talked about it briefly in one of our other segments, but when when folks with major mental illness who are arrested for these nuisance crimes end up in jail, it can be um, it can exacerbate their their illness. They can become victimized. It can just be a, a horrific experience for everybody, including the people who are um, working in the jail. It's absolutely true, and they don't receive treatment in jail, and the jail will be the first people to admit that. Most of them don't even receive the psychotropic medication they've been prescribed. Right. So somebody will be, um, you know, somebody suffering from schizophrenia will be put into a jail cell with a group of other men and probably has no idea um, why they're even there to begin with, and they're not receiving treatment at all, and they're, then they're getting handcuffed and put into timeout rooms and... and um, you know, it, it can it can just escalate to the point where it's just becoming much much worse than having the person treated. A couple of interesting books that uh, your reader, your listeners may be interested in is a fellow by the name of Peter Early. He's a he's a, a writer. Wrote a book called Crazy. It's about his son who suffered from schizophrenia, and he follows him through the legal system. And then he also did uh, his own research in Florida on. Um, you know, individuals with mental illness going into the going through the criminal justice system in Florida. Very interesting book, and then another interesting book is by a, a fellow. Uh, it's called The Outsider's Name of the book. I think his last name was Lackenmeyer, and he discusses his father going through the criminal justice system. And you may be particularly interested in that, Mary, because it happens in New Hampshire and Vermont. Uh, but he he kind of follows his father through the mental health uh, system in New Hampshire and and the, the jail system and how he was brought through the ju- the justice system in New Hampshire and it was his his father's schizophrenia that just kept cycling him through the system. Is the book still in print? Uh, as far as I know, I know crazy is. Yeah. I believe the outsider still is. Okay, I'll look for that, and we'll be right back. Uh, with our last segment with Judge Leary to talk more about decriminalizing mental illness and addiction. We'll be right back. Real Life Solutions. Voice America Health and Wellness. To savor something means to delight in, to absolutely enjoy. So why not savor yourself? Author and internationally acclaimed speaker Doris Smeltzer brings her message to the airwaves with Savor Yourself, Beyond Skin Deep. 
Plan to spend an empowering hour with Doris, where you will learn to recognize your worth and your beauty beyond society's limited one-size-fits-all mentality. Savor yourself with Doris Smeltzer, Mondays at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. on the East Coast, only on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Dad, can I ask you something? Sure. There's this girl I kind of like. Say no more. You just have to impress her. Okay, but how? Just, I don't know, pick up a lot of heavy things around her. Like what? You know, desks, chairs, people. Grunt if you have to. Grunt? Yeah, be like, oh! There you go. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To learn more, call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt US Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. Um, this afternoon, we're talking with Judge Leary from Nashua District Court, Nashua, New Hampshire, and we're talking about decriminalizing mental illness and addiction, um, a court's approach to justice, and this really does sound like justice. Um, we've been focusing mostly on adults over the last uh, three quarters of an hour, and I'm wondering, um, what about adolescents and juveniles? Uh, oftentimes, you know, mental illness starts to rear its ugly head in early adolescence, as does substance use and abuse. So. It does, and uh, we see it quite a bit in juvenile court. Um, we have a juvenile drug court, and I can tell you about that briefly. It's a program where if the child commits an offense, it has to be a criminal offense. If an adult, it would have to be what uh, fall within a crime, the definition of a crime. And um, if drugs or, or alcohol were involved to the point where it was a, you know, a factor in the person committing the crime, then they can be referred to the drug court program. And that is a very intense program where they have to come in, as I mentioned earlier about uh, some models and other courts, they come in once a week with their parents, or usually one parent, and they have a special probation, juvenile probation offer assigned to them, and that person comes in as well. And they are very closely reviewed, how their week went, what they did that week. And it's a, it's a very closely supervised, monitored program. If there is a violation, then they can be put into some type of a, what's called a shelter facility. It's a placement away from home as a consequence for that. So um, we do have that in the juvenile system. We do not have a mental health program. We have an, a, most of the 
most of the kids, most of the kids, is that true? Yeah, I'd say most of the kids we have do have, as part of the um, the time we, we have them under our jurisdiction, go through a psychological evaluation. And when you think we had, I think, like 1,400 kids last year, most of those, so I'm saying over 700 of those children had a psychological evaluation. And they give us recommendations on what exactly can be done. A lot of times it involves family. Most time it involves family, some kind of family intervention. And we see a lot of issues, mental health issues, substance abuse issues with these juveniles. They're in the family. You know, the parents have the same mental health issues. The parents have the same substance abuse issues. And we know that there's a genetic and environmental component to both uh, mental illness and substance use disorders and addiction. And I'm just wondering, do you see different generations of people cycle through your court? All the time. Uh, it's not uncommon. It's 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 um, almost make light of it sometimes, but it's not funny that you know the the juvenile come in and dad. We got to bring dad in. In handcuffs because dad has a right to be there for his son's trial and his son's arraignment and the whole legal process. But dad's in jail. We've had, I had a child just yesterday morning who was sitting there, uh, mom on one side in handcuffs with her, with her orange outfit on and dad on the left side in handcuffs with his orange outfit on with the sheriff standing behind both of his parents and his aunt sitting at the other end of the room who's taking care of him. They both, um, both parents have a serious substance abuse issue, and he was arrested for um, one of the one of the things he was arrested for was uh, possession of alcohol. So, my first reaction is, what chance has that kid got? Boy, you know? isn't it terrible? You know? I mean, that's you know, strike two, and the ball's coming down right down the middle of the plate for strike three. You know, I'm, what do you try to do to break that up? And um, you know, you try to have the parents educate the, the child as best you can that this isn't the way you want to live your life. And um, you know, just you just hope sometimes that works. You put you certainly provide all the services you can, the educational services, the counseling, therapeutic services, everything you can provide for that child. You do it, and just hope that something clicks. Right. Right, but we—you already know—he's at major risk for all kinds of things to happen in the future. The Absolutely. least of which is to come back to see you. Absolutely. You know? um, one of the things I was wondering about when you were talking about your um, your court, and you'd mentioned that some places there is domestic violence, and when there's—do um, you see many folks with PTSD that come before your court, or is that? something that you don't see as often. I'm thinking about we have so many returning veterans, and I know that there is a higher rate of, of substance misuse and abuse, and um, there's a higher rate of, uh, you know, people come back, they're hypervigilant, they're been in a war zone. Absolutely. You know? We're seeing it. As a matter of fact, um, we're seeing it with such regularity that we have now incorporate into this group that I mentioned about, the program that everyone sits around the table. We meet on a monthly basis. We have now brought into the fold uh, the Veterans Administration. We have a representative now from the Veterans Administration, who, will put, who and they provide services for free. Mm-hmm. Well, 
at no cost to the to the veteran. Right. And so they are now at the table. We are now referring as part of treatment um, sentences, if you will, the sentences or or the conditions of a of a case to have that person go to the VA center. The VA um, is reporting back to us if they're in compliance with the recommendations, and they do both individual counseling and they do substance abuse counseling. So yes, oh. we're certainly seeing that, as, and that is, you know, terribly tragic. And what, what's the typical profile of of, of offense that, that you would see with these folks? Assaults. Assaults. Yeah, assaults at home, assaults. Um, out on the street, um, one fellow was telling me a story about he was sitting in his car and somebody pulled up next to him and he kept staring at him. He just he said, I, I was back in Iraq, in Baghdad, on the city, city street, and I'm looking at this guy and he's looking at me and I'm thinking he's going to kill me. Um, you know, he's having flashbacks. And uh, what happened was he ended up running through a red light and it just... You know, as I mentioned before, it just escalates. He runs through a red light, the police pull him over, the police take him out of the car, he starts fighting with the police officer, so now he's got assaulting a police officer, resisting arrest, all these other charges, each one carrying up to a year in jail as a sentence. Wow. So, and it was all triggered by him sitting in traffic when a cop pulled up next to him, um, and he just flashed back to being on the street in, in, um, in Iraq. I, I was in actually Washington D.C. yesterday on the metro, and I was seeing a cro- diagonally across from a man in um, fatigues who uh, was sitting at the back of the car, facing the the doors, and he kept clenching and unclenching his fist, and he was scanning everybody in the in the car. And I sat there thinking, this must be terrifying for this guy to be yeah. in this closed environment. There's all kinds of people coming in, you know, and you could just see that. He was really uncomfortable, and um, you know, I, I, you know, my heart goes out to all of them. Yeah, and my, the other has been a lot of of uh, spousal abuse. Yeah, you know, they they just escalate into these. They just have outbursts and, and escalate and abuse spouses. Whereby prior to going to the service, they never they never exhibited these symptoms before. Right. Um. So for. For anyone who um, is is thinking about um, starting a, a diversion program for mental illness or for um, a court diversion program for people with a dual disorder, what are the resources that are available to them? Well, they can get in touch with the Bureau of Justice Administration. They have a lot of information available. They have a website under the Department of Justice website, SAMHSA. Uh, has a, a website with a tremendous amount of information. Uh, if it's a judge, the National Judicial College has a great deal of information um, available, helping you start New Hampshire. I mean, sorry, start helping you start mental health courts. Um, but I think the most important thing is that, regardless of which part of the the community you're coming from, you start a communication with the judicial judicial system, with the police, with the providers, and just get that communication going, because I think that's the most valuable part of these programs. 
I really applaud your effort to do this because I know it makes a huge difference for individuals and families and people are able to be treated in a humane way and it minimizes the victimization that often occurs when when these folks do get arrested. And I just applaud your initiative because it's uh, something that was long overdue. Well, thank you very much. And and I think it's great. I, I also believe that communication is is vital. And when each system is talking to the other system, we're able to do good things for people. Absolutely. In, in, in the way that I think it was intended to happen. So um, thank you, and uh, keep up the good work. Well, thank you very much. It was a pleasure. And we'll see you next week on One Hour at a Time. We appreciate you joining us today for One Hour at a Time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.